All right, we're up to verse 31 of Lamentations 3. And the unit, which includes verses 31 to 33, on your outline, the letter K, on the symmetrical paradigm. Once again, I am reading the verses from the New American Standard Version. Numbers 3.31. For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. With verses 31 to 33, we have reached the center of this poem in the lengthy third chapter of Lamentations. In fact, one commentator suggests that these verses place us at the very center, the very center of the whole five-chapter book of Lamentations. In form, the New American Standard shows the repetitive pattern of the Hebrew text from the initial words in each of the verses 31, 32, and 33. The English word for is the Hebrew word key, signaled by the initial letter kaf, as your outline shows you. The letter K in English on your outline and the Hebrew letter kaf to the left of the K is the way you make the word key, the cough succeeded by an accented yoth, pronounced key. The Hebrew key or key clause is extremely important, particularly in Hebrew poetry. And here you see it, although you don't see it in Hebrew, but you see it in English translation if you're using the New American Standard with a consistent 4, 4, 4 at the beginning of each of those three verses because it's key, key, key in the Hebrew text. Now, what does it mean? Why is it important? The key clause in Hebrew is a word or clause of explanation, and it explains by way of causation. That is, it may be rendered in English not only for but because or on account of this reason. So it is a causal clause. The cause or reason of the suffering of the preceding verses in this third chapter is the connection between rejection and election. The connection between humiliation and compassion. The connection between permission and disposition. We want to return to those antitheses in a moment, but for the present, we observe that verse 31 is one of the shortest verses in the book of Lamentations. It is a unique monocola in a sea of bicolas. That is, virtually every verse in Lamentations contains two phrases two colons, or a bicola. Your English versions translate this stylistic format, this bicola pattern. 
Nearly all of your verses in your English books of Lamentation have two lines or two phrases per line. The English translators have followed the arrangement of the Hebrew. Two thoughts or two phrases per Hebrew verse. The bicola pattern, which incidentally is fundamental to Hebrew poetry, whether it's Lamentation, Psalms, Proverbs, or any of the poetic books of the Old Testament. But not so here. Not in Lamentations 3.31. A unique, almost solitary monocola of not two phrases, but one phrase. The Lord will not reject forever. It literally leaps off the page at you. Particularly if you're following the Hebrew, it jumps out at you as being entirely different from what surrounds it. And notice that word forever. In Hebrew, literally, olam, to eternity. Even through our poet prophet, God had pledged to preserve a remnant. O Lord, you will not reject forever an elect remnant, not rejected according to the election of grace. A true and elect remnant in the act of grace which would indeed come from eternity, he would come, he whom his father could not reject forever, though for a moment he would turn his back upon his cry, a moment of rejection as if it were as eternal as every moment of his affection for that son of his eternal begetting. Rejection in time signals the question of rejection in eternity. Christ in time, rejected, answers the question, never in eternity. Never in eternity for the remnant according to the election of grace, as it is never in eternity for the rejection of the Son of the Father, never in eternity for the rejection of those and Christo. In Christ, never. The Lord will not reject La Olam. Now, the position of the Hebrew word for Lord in this verse, verse 31, is powerful. Why do I say the position? of the name of God is powerful. The name is Adonai here, which is translated Lord. It is the last word in the verse. It is the last word in the verse. Your English translations put it near the beginning of the verse. The Hebrew text puts it at the end of the verse. And right next to the Lord, or the word Adonai for Lord, is the Hebrew word for eternity. Olam. 
La'olam Adonai. La'olam Adonai. Eternity and Lord. The Lord next to eternity. Eternity standing next to the Lord. For the Lord is eternal. And eternity is his nature. And the nature of the dimension that he inhabits. The reversal of rejection by election is performed by the Lord Adonai of eternity. In his eternal Son and in Christ, in those graciously joined to his reversal, his reversal from death to life, his reversal from rejection to restoration of eternal election. Now, verse 32. Verse 32 reprises two words from verse 22. Loving kindness and compassion. Our suffering man here renews and repeats his acclamation there, his confession of verse 22. The Lord is gracious in loving kindness, Hebrew hesed. The Lord is compassionate in mercy, Hebrew, Raham. Surely this is sufficient for grief and sorrow and tears and even death. The Lord is gracious in his loving kindness. The Lord is compassionate in his mercy. That will suffice in Christ. It is enough, is it not? The prophet Isaiah proclaims a similar theme. I hid my face from you for a moment, saith the Lord, but with everlasting, there's that Hebrew word, olam again, but with everlasting loving kindness, hesed, I will have compassion, Raham, on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah 54, verse 8. Does Jeremiah know the writing of the prophet Isaiah? Indeed, he does. Does he borrow this phrase from that prophet? I'm not sure, but certainly the Holy Spirit can accomplish that if he wish. And for Isaiah, and for Jeremiah, and for you, the Lord Jesus, your Redeemer, is loving kindness and compassion, le olam. To eternity. Verse 33. Verse 33 literally reads in the Hebrew, 
God does not afflict from the heart. Those of you that have the New American Standard will note that the margin does have that literal translation. This is the same as indicating God's will to afflict does not arise from his love, but from his justice. His will of love or complacence does not reject forever, verse 31. It graciously effects a remnant elected, preserved, predestined according to his mercy and loving kindness. Yet God does not, God does afflict from his will of permission and righteous judgment. Sinners having freely chosen sin, God permits them to receive the consequences of the sin they have freely chosen. This is God's heart of justice, willingly punishing sin and evil. Thus, God's will does not effect the affliction from his heart of affection. God's will permits the affliction from his heart of justice. He is not willingly, he is not willing the affliction efficaciously. That is, from his heart of gracious love. He is willing the affliction permissively from his heart of just wrath. Even here, we keep in mind the distinction between the permissive and efficacious will of God. The distinction between his will of complacence and his will of permissive benevolence. Verses 34 to 36. To crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit of these things the Lord does not approve. Now, these three verses are distinguished by the infinitive construct which begins each verse. The New American Standard consistently translates the infinitive form of the Hebrew with the English preposition to, T-O, plus the respective verb. To crush, verse 34. To deprive, verse 35. To defraud, verse 36. These infinitive clauses are further elaborations of verse 33. God does not afflict from his heart to crush, to deprive, or to defraud. In fact, verse 36, these things he, that is God, does not approve. He may permit them, but they do not arise from his heart of love and mercy. They are the result of the consequence of sin, which he willingly permits. We note then the complementary relationship between verses 31 to 33 and verses 34 to 36, as the K, cake prime letters on your outline indicate. 
You observe, as you look at the outline, the chiastic or reverse pattern of the negative word, the word not, with the word for Lord, Adonai. Not Adonai, verse 31. Adonai, not, verse 36. This reinforces the integrity of the poetic unit, verses 31 to 36, with a reverse chiastic frame, bracketing the beginning verse of the unit and the concluding verse of the unit. This chiastic form, this bracketing pattern, holds these six verses together. They are, in fact, the core center of the third chapter and that crisscross chiasm, which we have observed also at the center of chapter 1 and chapter 2, returns here in chapter 3. This is a consistent poetic exercise of artistic genius. He hasn't forgotten himself by the time he comes to the third chapter, signaling by his little chiasm the reverse of the drama in the poetic narrative. That structural pattern reinforces the reversals. What does God do? He elects his suffering remnant for salvation. What does God not do? He does not elect the persecuting majority destined for destruction. Parenthetically, that is the message of the whole third chapter, now miniaturized, mirror-wise, in these six verses, 31 to 36. We are not forgetting the sovereignty of God, for Jeremiah does not forget it, nor does he forget the double decrees of God or the twofold decretive will of God. That doesn't make him a later Calvinist, but it makes us Calvinists followers of Jeremiah and his doctrine of divine sovereignty. Calvin just happened to see it as well as us, Lord willing, I hope. Verses 35 and 36 focus on the practice of justice and its obverse, the practice of injustice. Here, to turn aside justice or subvert it and to pervert justice or to be crooked is being referred to the legal arena of Judah and Jerusalem's judicial <clears throat> judicial atmosphere. That justice, which is to be blind out of righteous fairness, is twisted before the eyes of God and flows from a pagan or neo-pagan notion that there is no God to see the illegality of the judicial arena, or that the gods, soever they be, are as corrupt and unjust as their minions at the bar. To paraphrase Dostoevsky, if there is no God after all, what difference does it make? Well, of course, if there's no God, what difference does it make? It makes no difference if there is no God. Might becomes right. Or deceit 
lies and corruption. If there is no God, that's okay. And you can broadcast it from the airwaves and proclaim it in the halls of Congress. And it's okay. Well, you realize that if there is no God, there are no standards. And the standards are those that those in power set. And they will live by those standards. And the rest can be ignored as benighted and blighted bigots. Prejudiced bigots who don't see the prima donnas of the age of deceit and corruption parading themselves properly because those who believe in true truth are certainly benighted and uneducated and prejudiced and all the other words of humiliation and degradation that we can throw at them in order to extol ourselves even the further for our mendacity and deceit. Justice is what the perverse court and subverted legal beagles say it is if there is no God. If justice is now defined as beneficial to the unjust, then injustice has become justice and unrighteousness has become righteousness. We've just decided to take the judicial sphere and make wrong right and right wrong because we have the authority legally to do so because we've been given gavels in our hand and black robes to rear behind benches. Just ask us. The righteous suffer under such illegality and our righteous suffering man here is burdened, grieved, and even broken-hearted about the endemic injustice launched against him. Yes, this righteous man is bearing the brunt of unrighteous injustice. He's giving some lists of what that unrighteous injustice is, but he is involved in feeling it. He's involved in experiencing it. He's involved in being aware that the courts of his day are meeting out injustice, not justice, declaring unrighteousness righteous. Will it be any less? Will it be any less with the eschatological suffering man when justice will be turned aside and the law of right will be made crooked so as to twist him in agony before the unrighteous professionals of the law of his day. It will be no less unjust and no less unrighteous, but he will bear the brunt eschatologically. 
Thank God he did so that we don't have to. We observe then that this theme of injustice, perversion and twisting of the law by those with a hidden agenda. God does not see. Notice verse 36. God does not see. That's what that verse says, quite literally. This theme is a Jeremianic theme. What he suffers here, he has experienced there in his prophetic work. Jeremiah 5.1. Rome to and fro in the streets of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, can you find a man, any person, can you find anyone who does justice? And we think our culture is bad. Can you find anyone in 586 B.C. Jerusalem who does justice? Or Jeremiah 7, 5, practice justice between a man and his neighbor, the prophet declares. And then he goes on to detail the injustices abroad in Judah and Jerusalem, including oppression, especially the oppression of orphans and widows, murder, shedding innocent blood, idolatry, especially acting out the morals of gods that are unknown. Jeremiah 9:24 I am the Lord who exercises justice and righteousness I delight in these things but the unjust and unrighteous delight in those things don't they They have parties to celebrate their victories They drink themselves stupid when they win in court Jeremiah 22, verse 4, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver the one robbed from the power of his oppressor. Jeremiah 23, 5, do not mistreat the stranger, the widow, the orphan, or shed innocent blood. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Jeremiah preached that. On no less than five occasions, as I've enumerated. And every time he preached it, it went unheeded. The cry of the prophet was despised. Injustice increased in Judah and Jerusalem to national destruction. National destruction because of injustice and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness metastasized to a national cancer. Consuming the orchestrator of lies, deceit, egocentrism, oppression of the innocent, use of legal powers to suppress liberty, excusing the guilty by reversing the law to serve their own perverse agendas. Such a nation, such a culture, such an unjust tyranny lay in rubble. It lay in rubble, 586 B.C. The just and righteous God who seeks, who sees injustice, who beholds unrighteousness, declares sentence from the bench of his court on high. And this is the sentence he declares. Such a culture, such a nation, 586 B.C., will be brought down by death. 
The Lord sees. He is not blind. And he is a Lord of righteous justice and punishment of injustice and unrighteousness. This righteous man, this righteous suffering man in Lamentations 3, is also the man who predicted, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up a righteous branch and he will do justice and righteousness. And in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth and he he shall execute justice and righteousness. What the prophet predicted, the poet prophet foreshadowed a righteous sufferer who is raised up, who springs forth to do, to execute justice and righteousness because this eschatological sufferer, this last and final suffering man swallows up all unrighteousness in his righteousness, takes all injustice to his all-just, ever-just self. And in that perfect eschatological justice and righteousness, he walks in the streets of the new Jerusalem. He walks in that heavenly promised land. He does. He executes eschatological justice and eschatological righteousness Le Olam to eternity. No injustice in that city. No unrighteousness in that arena. No unrighteousness nor injustice in that person. None. Dare you live on this side of that eternal chasm as if there is no justice and righteousness? Dare you live in the antithesis of justice and righteousness? Do you dare? I wouldn't roll the dice on that proposition. I wouldn't take the chance. Verses 37 to 39. Who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? The commentators uniformly draw attention to verse 37 here in Lamentations 3 and Psalm 33, verse 9. Psalm 33, verse 9 reads, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The context of that 33rd Psalm is God's work of creation. He spoke, and the heavens were made at his command. He spoke, and the waters of the sea and the inhabitants of the, thir- of the earth were brought forth. 
we are reminded by the psalmist in Psalm 33 of what the theologians called fiat creation. That is, God spoke the word and it was so. Let there be light and there was light, fiat creation. Let the dry land appear and it was so, fiat creation. He speaks the word and creation comes into existence. He speaks creation into existence. Now, is God's creative word or his creative power in creation the focus of Lamentations 3.37? Verse 38 suggests our poet is featuring something which is more fundamental than creation. Verse 38 suggests the mouth or word of God in relation to good and evil. We have confronted this issue on many occasions in this poem, and we have steadfastly affirmed the sovereignty of God over all creatures as over all creation moral and non-moral creatures and creation. We have also steadfastly affirmed the concurrence of God efficaciously decreeing and producing good, even as he permissibly decrees and unefficaciously allows evil. In God, this concurrence contains no contradiction. Rather, it harmoniously preserves his sovereign lordship over good and evil without being the author of the latter. He is not the author of evil. He is not the efficacious author of evil. The good, then, that had come to pass in Jeremiah's prophetic, poetic, and vicarious career came efficaciously in the sovereign work of God on his mind, on his will, on his heart, on his soul, in his body. The evil that had come to pass in Jeremiah's prophetic, poetic, and vicarious career came permissively in the sovereign work of God on the mind, will, heart, soul, and body of evildoers in that era. And that evil arose not from God's effectual agency, but from mortal man's sinful agency, verse 39. Why should any living mortal complain in view of his sins? No complaint against God may be filed by the sinner. Sin arises from within sinners, not from within God. No objection may be lodged against the Lord's moral character. His character is perfectly moral, completely set apart from sin. That's what holiness means. And he is perfectly holy. Moral evil arises from within morally evil sinners who are unholy. It does not arise, does evil, from within God. And it was that willful moral evil which brought its own crushing and deadly consequences upon Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 
an evil generation, immoral in every aspect of its being, that despised God in its heart, in its will, in its soul, and in its bodily actions. In view of these immoral iniquities, what mortal in Jerusalem and Judah could complain against God? Even Jeremiah himself, even Jeremiah himself was drawn into this circle of sin and immorality, especially in his complaints against God, where he charges God with deceit. He charges God with deceit and curses the day he was born. Jeremiah 20, verses 7 and 14. But here, Jeremiah, suffering man, acknowledges that even he has no complaint to offer against God, for he is a mortal man and suffers for his own sins, even as he is drawn into the suffering of the sins of others. An eschatological suffering man will be necessary. One who is both God perfectly good and holy and man perfectly temptable by evil and exposed to sin and yet will not sin. Does not sin. That God-man will be and remain without sin. And he will be without sin and remain without sin so that he can perfectly bear sin and evil in the place of those who are full of sin and evil. And in their place, he will do what they could never do. No, not in all eternity could they ever do it. In his place, he will do what Jeremiah could never do. No, not in all eternity could Jeremiah do it. He will crucify sin and evil. He will crucify sin and evil with his eternal moral good. Crucify and put to death evil and sin for those whom he takes to that cross with him. And when he was nailed there, they were nailed together with him. Their sins erased in his eternal sinlessness. Their evil canceled in his eternal holiness. Their damnable estate transformed in his eternally blessed estate. He took them with him. So that he could also take them with him in his resurrection and glorification. If he didn't, we are of all men and women most miserable. But if he did, all history is different since that day on Calvary and in that empty garden tomb. All human history is different. And that's the reason it took a risen Christ to change the apostle, to change the Jew Saul into the Christian Paul. That's the reason it took a resurrection vision to do it. No arguments, no discussions, no debates, no uh, conversations, 
about who Jesus of Nazareth was, was or was not could ever have stopped that man, that persecuting, hateful man. Nothing could have stopped him dead in his tracks but the fact that he saw resurrection in front of his eyes and said, the end of the age is upon me. Me. He had to be taken in to the glory of resurrection in order to realize how wrong he had been. He had to be drawn into the drama of the risen Christ who had put death to death in order to become the apostle of death and resurrection in Christ Jesus. God knew precisely what was necessary to change the hard-hearted apostle into the soft-hearted savior or proclaimer of salvation through Jesus Christ. He would take the age to come in its resurrection glory, stopping him in his Jewish flat eschatological tracks. His Jewish tracks which looked for the resurrection to come at the end of the world and here's the resurrection looking him in the face in the midst of history. What? What? My whole eschatology's wrong. My whole theology's wrong. I'm looking at resurrection. I'm looking at heaven-glorified resurrection right now. I can't be a Jew anymore. Impossible. I can't be a disciple of Gamaliel anymore. Impossible. I can't persecute the church anymore. Impossible. I have seen the age to come full in the face of the risen Son of God. Lord, what wouldst thou have me do? That's what changed fullness of what Jeremiah knows. We know that a greater than Jeremiah must come, has come, will come again. Or do you think that Jeremiah does not know this now? Do you think that he is not sitting at the feet of the eschatological Jeremiah and realizing the fullness of everything he ever wrote or preached or suffered. A footnote. These verses 37 to 39 have a reverse mirror reflection. The J prime on your outline, as compared to verses 28 to 30, the J on your outline. You will notice the mirror of the sinner's mouth in verse 29, reflected in the sinless mouth of the Lord God Most High. This is the mirror that all us sinners need. The sinless Lord God on high, our sin-bearer, our sin-bearer. Now, before we take our little break, I want to uh, review and address a question more exactly than I was 
able to do last week when it was raised, and that was the question about the word wormwood and its occurrence in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Lewis uses that word for screw tape's nephew. Now, <clears throat> screw tape in the screw tape letters is an ambassador from hell. He is a minion of, as he calls him, our father below. And Wormwood is his nephew, and he writes these letters to his nephew on behalf of our father below in order to encourage Wormwood to distract and to pervert the life of his subject, who happens to be a Christian. And so, this is a uh, description of an attack of Satan and his minions upon a Christian believer and the wiles which they use in order to corrupt that uh, subject believer. Well, why call this demon that is attacking this Christian Wormwood? Why that name? Well, you may remember that when uh, Cheryl reacted to that, uh, she said something like, ugh, or uh, that's not too pleasant. Uh, <clears throat> in other words, it's kind of an icky word, which I think is the reason Lewis chose it. It just, <clears throat> it just has a kind of repulsive sense to it when you think of wormwood. Yuck. But Wormwood is also, interestingly, in Revelation 18.11, the name of a star. And so there are those that think that perhaps it is Lewis thinking about that star in Revelation as perhaps a fallen star. I'm not sure that that makes as much sense as the image from the bitterness of Lamentations and Deuteronomy and other places in the Bible where the word Wormwood occurs. It doesn't seem to be a definitive exegesis of why Lewis chose this term. At least I haven't been able to find it. So I'll leave it at that. Namely, that it appears to have been a name that he chose because it had a kind of repulsive or ickiness about it which, of course, is what we ought to feel about the devil and his minions anyway. They are icky and repulsive. So, get thee behind me, Satan, and all your demons. All right. A question, Randy? Yeah, the names of the other dudes in his book are icky, too. So, that's probably slot gun or something. I can't remember. I can't remember the rest of them. Yeah, it's been several years since I read it to my wife, and... uh, As you can see, she asked a question and Wormwood stuck with her. Even I hadn't thought about Lewis's use of the word. But at any rate, it's interesting reading. Um, so I commend the screw tape letters to you, although it's not easy reading. It, it is quite profound <clears throat> uh, because he is actually uh, showing you the wiles of the devil in a way which we don't often think of them.
Well, no more whiles in this presentation. After a while, have a break. Verses 40 to 42. Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. We will lift up our hearts and hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Now we have observed before that the relationship between the parallel or symmetrical units of chapter 3 sometimes amplify or enlarge the riches of the one in the other. You will observe this in the I prime and I relationship between verses 40 to 42 and verses 25 to 27 on your outline. Verse 26 of the I unit, for instance, proclaims the salvation of the Lord. The I prime verses, which we just read, amplify that salvation with repentance, eyes fixed on heaven, and confession of sin and rebellion. Where the riches of the Lord's salvation are present, there are the treasures of a penitent heart, the treasures of a soul longing, yea, yearning for heaven, the treasures of a sorrowing heart pouring out confession, confession of sin and rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed Christ. There is, therefore, a mirror symmetry between I and I prime. It is the reflection of the work of salvation in the acts of salvation, and the acts of salvation proving the work of salvation. Now, notice, if you will, in these verses, the most frequent pronoun. As you scan them on your own, what is the most frequent pronoun or series of pronouns in this unit? Us, we, our. Very good. Us, we, our. What number pronoun is that, Kay? First person. First person. Plural. It is the first person plural pronoun. What's the first person singular pronoun? Okay, you're still on the docket here. I, yes. All right, so notice that we have changed from the I and me pronoun, which we had been observing prior to verse 40, to the we and us pronoun. There is a shift here at verse 40, pronomial shift. Our poet author our suffering man is changing or he's shifting. Why? He is not speaking as an I person. He is using the us, we, our person. What's he doing? Randy? 
Well, after the previous verses, he appears to be talking about those who would understand those previous verses, six, eight verses before. So what kind of language is this? Positive language. It's positive, yes, but us, we, our. What kind of language is that in distinction from I, me, mine? Nancy? Inclusive. Yes, good, it's inclusive. Any other suggestions? It's corporate language. It's the language of incorporation. It's us, that is, I'm with you. It's we, it's our. It's our corporate experience. It's not just me, my, mine individually. But here we see this other aspect of the poet's character here, that is, his representational, or his corporate, or his covenantal, or his federal, or his identificational language. That is, he identifies with his audience. We, it is our, together with us. All right, so he's speaking as the representative of others here. Uniting himself to their plight, identifying with it, and covenantally doing what he urges them to do. Turning to the Lord, lifting up the heart to heaven, confessing sin and rebellion in which they have lived as well as he. As one commentator writes, this righteous man May, may be representing the people here. That commentator is absolutely right. She perceives that the suffering servant is representing the people in confession and salvation. This is, therefore, corporate representation, which can only be anticipated. Our poet-prophet cannot effect it. He cannot bring it to eschatological accomplishment. But the one himself who mirrors our suffering man, that one who excels our suffering man with the identification, I am the man of sorrows. I am the suffering, the afflicted servant of the Lord. Jeremiah like I am he, says the mirror Jeremiah, the eschatological Jeremiah, the greater than Jeremiah, the Jeremiah who is God, God the Son, and glorious in the treasures of the riches of the salvation he brings, the repentance he brings, the eye to the kingdom of heaven which he brings, the vicarious satisfaction for sin and rebellion which he brings. Olam, to eternity. Well, what does it mean to lift up the hands in verse 41? Is Jeremiah a Pentecostal or a Neo-Pentecostal? What does it mean to lift up the hands? Many commentators observe hands of prayer. Suppliant hands. Hands of sincerity in supplication and petition. There may be some truth in that observation, but if so, then the emphasis would be placed on what those hands receive. Now, it is true 
sincere, suppliant, or prayerful hands receive from the Lord. I don't want to deny that. But these hands are extended to heaven as these hearts are extended to heaven. Heaven does not bestow upon suppliant hands as if their extension or their uplifting were deserving of receiving, worthy of getting, owed receipt of some heavenly favor. No, heaven is where hands and hearts are given, given over to the divine favor. In fact, the reception of the divine favor draws those hands and hearts to give themselves to give themselves to heaven's Lord, heaven's Lamb, heaven's life. These hands are giving themselves up to heaven. These hands are giving themselves into heaven. These hands are giving themselves over to heaven because they have first received heaven's gift, heaven's grace, heaven's astonishing transformation, and regeneration. We have received gifts from God the Lord and His Son, the Christ. We mirror that divine and supernatural act of heaven by yielding, by offering up, by giving our hearts and hands in response, in return, in mirror symmetry to the Lord God in heaven. I want you to be careful to notice here that this is not a quasi-merit paradigm. As if they're raising their hands is inducing God to give them something. They are offering up because they have already received a gift. And they're displaying their responsive gratitude in thanksgiving and expressing. Well then, if that is the case with these persons of uplifted hands, then what is going on with that last verse 42? Thou hast not pardoned. If these hands have been lifted up because they've received a gift, one would think that the gift that they've received is at least pardoning, among other things, forgiveness of their sins. Well, then why does he say thou hast not pardoned? Did he forget himself? Liberal commentators, in good pagan Pelagian fashion, declare that God is to blame for not rewarding or blessing those uplifted hearts and hands for having done their part. After all, all liberals, as all pagans and Pelagians, believe in a quid pro quo religion. We did our part with our hearts and hands. Now, God, you owe us your part. Pardon our sin. We paid our dues. We brought the penance. Now do your part and give us the reward. Isn't that the way the system works? Well, the liberal believes that. He really does. This is the God-blame theology. It is prevalent in the liberal commentaries on the book of Lamentations. And it is, in reality, the theology of God of the liberal mind. He is like them. The God of Lamentations is like the God that they have created in their own image. And when he does not conform to their image of what they conceive God to be, they blame him for the evil. 
In fact, there are many liberal commentators that say God is the author of the injustice, cruelty, and evil in this book. He is the efficacious actor doing it. And you should read the screeds in their commentary portions in which they go after him for being vicious, evil, sinful. Now that is blasphemy. And yet, that's the liberal mind. Because the liberal mind believes that the sins against social justice are the only sins that are worth dealing with. And therefore, those sins which aren't corrected are to be blamed upon God who won't correct them. Or, we'll have a God of social justice who will correct them, and of course, we're his ambassadors to do it, right? And we all vote democratic, right? Yes, don't we ever. Because we're the crusaders of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Modern liberal mind and the recreating of the God of the Bible in their modern liberal image. Well, Denison, you talk about getting some benefit from these liberal commentaries. What are you doing? Well, you should burn those liberal commentaries you've got on your shelf. No, I'm not some egg in the head in the sand fundamentalist, please. As if I can't learn from the enemy. Or as if I can't learn from scholars who are on the other side of the theological spectrum. I'm a big boy. I can handle myself. I went four years into their institutions and underwent the baptism of fire. I know how they think. I'm not worried about them. Would I send my kids into that environment? I might not. I might not. Would I send some theological students into that environment? I might not. I remember John Gerstner, my esteemed mentor, telling a student after the first year in seminary that I attended with him, you can't take it here. You need to get out of here. Your soul's in danger. Leave. Go to a conservative seminary. All right. You use them for what you can benefit from them. You don't use them in order to be persuaded by them. You are well grounded and you understand what orthodoxy is before you venture into their liberal pages. But when you have that well-grounded orthodoxy, you're not afraid of those liberal pages. You can handle it. As long as you remember to remember your orthodoxy and not forget it. What we're seeing now in the erosion of evangelical, conservative, and even reformed theologians is that they want to be popular with the big liberal boys. They want to rub shoulders with them in their conferences and in their societies. And in so doing, what are we finding? We're finding people at Wheaton Seminary and Wheaton College talking about theistic evolution and a non-historical Adam and Eve, professors of Old Testament. That's what we're finding. Wheaton College, where Billy Graham went to school. And Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which defessed, which, de, which, Dismissed an Old Testament professor years ago because he believed the same rubbish, which he's ultimately published openly on the Internet since he was fired by that seminary. 
the encroachment of liberalism into historically conservative organizations. It is ever and always the same. The progressive mind cannot remain stagnant. The progressive mind must progressively get more progressive. It will not stop. You think transgender, transgender restrooms are dead? I got news for you. It's the next Civil Rights Act. They're not going to stop. They're not. If they stop, they're not progressive. You think their opposition to Christianity and wanting to put Christians in jail is going to stop? It's not. They hate Christians and they hate Christians. It's not going to stop. Progressives don't stop. Progress is unraveling Christianity. Progress is unraveling historic Western civilization. Progress is destroying that's what Saul Alinsky taught them in the 60s, and that's the handbook that they all use. And if you don't know anything about Saul Alinsky, then you don't know anything about what drives the President of the United States, because that's exactly what drives him. The radical social activism and community organization of Saul Alinsky in Chicago, Illinois, in the 1960s. These are the graduates of that method that run this country today. They are the people that have been elected to power ever since the 1980s, in the 1990s in this country. And now they are feeling their oats. And now you see what the oats produce. Now you see the results and consequences of it. Yes, Randy, you've been patiently waving your hand over there like a wild protester. A-L-I-N-S-K-Y. I'm surprised you don't know about Saul Alinsky. You know about all mess of radicals. You talk to me about them all the time. I guess I missed my radical bus on that one. <laughs> I'm going to give you an F in radical stuff. <clears throat> he influenced Harvey Cox. You know who Harvey Cox is? Yes, the secular city, God in the city. Saul Alinsky was an influence on Harvey Cox. James Cone, the black liberation theologian. James Cone, C-O-N-E. Another Saul Alinsky disciple. All right, well, uh, we've gotten off the track a little bit here. But when you think about the modern liberal mind, you're, you're in a cesspool, believe me. All right. So if there is no quid pro Quo pagan Pelagianism here in Lamentations 3.42. What is here? David? Well, this may be simplistic, but as I look at it, verses 40 and 41 are exhortatory or exhortation, and 42 and the following is observational. Very good. <laughs> Essentially, what David says is 42 is a statement of a fact, which is what it is. It's a simple statement that God is not pardoned because Judah and Jerusalem have not yet repented, confessed, and turned their eyes to heaven. They've been exhorted. David was talking about exhortation. They've been exhorted to do so by our poet prophet, 
They have been urged to their duty by our poet prophet, but as yet they are not pardoned because they have not yet been effectually regenerated and transformed by heaven's eschatological gift, by heaven's eschatological grace. They haven't yet been transformed by heaven's eschatological Lord. Grace first, not out of indebting God to the sinner by good works or penitential merits of obedience. I do this and you, Lord, reward me for doing that. But grace first gives, heaven first gives, and then heart and hands give mirror-like in return. Verse 42 is a simple declaration of the case. He will pardon when repentance, confession, and gracious transformation and regeneration occur. All right, verses 43 to 45. Thou hast covered thyself with anger and pursued us. Thou hast slain and hast not spared. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Mere off-scouring and refuse thou hast made us in the midst of the peoples. Now, verse 43 and 44, you'll notice it right away. The duplicate initial phrase. Thou hast covered thyself, thou hast covered thyself. Duplication is emphatic. This is an emphatic underscoring of the fact that God has hidden himself in the reverse of making his face to shine upon his people. He has hidden himself in the reverse of making his face to shine upon his people. The Hebrew word for covering here is used of the wings of the cherubim which cover the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 20, Exodus 37, 9, 1 Kings 8, 7. The cherubim are the guardians of the throne of the all-glorious, all-merciful Lord God. Here, that glory and mercy has been replaced by the Lord God's anger. He has hidden himself in his wrath. This is why he has not pardoned, verse 42. This is why he has pursued and not spared. As Judah and Jerusalem have been God's adversary, so God becomes, their covering through covering himself and just punishment, he becomes their adversary. The duplication of verse 44 enhances the image of, by describing God covered with a cloud. God wrapping himself in a cloud of obscurity. Surely you see the profound irony here. The Lord who had revealed himself, disclosed himself, showed himself in a pillar of cloud, manifested himself in a cloud filling the tabernacle and the temple. The Lord now wraps himself in a cloud which hides him, a cloud which obscures him, a cloud dark and foreboding 
which discloses the righteous frown of his face upon sin and unrepentant sinners. It was in the cloud of smoking incense that the prayers of the people of God ascended in the tabernacle and temple. Now the reverse cloud. The reverse cloud bars all prayers from the mercy seat of God as it bars all prayers of impenitent sinners from the ears of God. You didn't know that? God does not hear the prayers of the wicked? Oh, yes, he hears them, he's aware of them. But he does not hear with acceptance. He does not hear with approval. He does not hear as entertaining those prayers. Those prayers do not get through because they are not prayed out of a heart of grace. They are prayed out of an evil and depraved heart. They are prayers which are prayers for self-purposes. They are not prayers for the glory of God. And he hears them not. He does not answer them. He will not answer until the prayer comes out of a heart which has been turned to the Lord and prays in truth, Lord God, save me and don't send me to hell. Which is the only sincere prayer that a impenitent person can can pray. Lord God, don't send me to hell. And then he is beginning to realize that grace has touched his heart to even say it. But this cloud bars all prayers from sinful Judah and Jerusalem. Why? Because sinners make God their enemy by being enemies of God himself. If he does not hear their cries, it is because he can only hear and see in the glory cloud of his grace and mercy. A sinner must see that cloud of open disclosure before the dark cloud of wrath and anger is pierced, the barrier removed, and God wraps that sinner in the cloud of his wonderful mercy and grace. Please note the antithesis of symmetry between verses 43 and 45 and their complement verses 22 to 24 on your outline H and H prime. In verses 22 to 24, our poet extols God's loving kindness, his never-failing compassion, his renewed day-by-day faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. These wonderful tokens of God's gracious character are absent from verses 43 to 45. Antithetically absent. Absent by way of reverse images. Images of the opposite of grace and compassion and loving kindness. The poet, our suffering man, is identified with both sides of the symmetry. In him, both the grace of God and the wrath of God play out the drama. The drama of life in history exposed to the self-disclosing cloud of God's love and grace while being delivered from the barrier of being wrapped in the cloud of God's just anger and wrath. This suffering servant experiences both clouds, 
one a glorious cloud of transfiguration and the other an ominous cloud of dereliction. And those clouds have eschatological significance. The off-scouring and refuse of verse 45 is the filth and rubbish of both the bodily waste and throwaway waste of the city and nation. That this curse describes the people is a tragic and pathetic reversal of election. Israel, chosen from among the nations, now rejected as garbage to be scattered in the landfills of the nations. She who was to be a peculiar treasure and a special possession of the Lord, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, she has made herself human offal and rubbish for the trash heaps and cesspools of the nations. She has glorified the filth, and so she has been remade in its image, remade to be scattered from before the face of a pure and holy and perfectly clean God and Lord. You descend into the filth, and the filth is what you will become. Surely, surely we have seen that in our generation. The ugly filthiness of depravity and sin in the most wretched, wretched of filthy and cesspool-like arenas turns your stomach. Woodstock turns your stomach. Any questions or comments? Lord willing, we will finish chapter 3 next time. So, let's close in prayer. O Lord, your hand of permitting evil has been loosened in our own day to the point that we are shocked, chagrined, and grieved at heart at the pervasive witness and evidence of depravity around us in virtually every avenue of our life. You have taken off the restraints even of conscience so that unnatural acts are now regarded as natural to the chagrin of those who seek privacy and freedom, freedom from such iniquity. Are you allowing us, O Lord, to reap what we have sown? O Lord, you are certainly allowing us to realize that we can go to no other except to you, by your Son, the Lord Jesus, through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. And in that confidence, we face our generation. We stand in him who has overcome evil 
and filthiness and ugliness and utter depravity. He has crucified it for us and unto us. He has drawn us by his Holy Spirit into the life of glory and righteousness and truth and goodness and holiness. He has caught us up together with him, even in seating us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We need that encouragement daily, O Lord. Not only to sing, great is thy faithfulness, and to remember thy gracious loving kindness and thy compassionate mercy, but to remember our seat in Christ Jesus at your right hand in him. For he, he and he alone, has triumphed over every evil and sin and despicable, unnatural act of this evil generation. Deliver us from evil, O Lord, we pray. Deliver us in Christ Jesus from evil, we pray. And by your Spirit, keep us in that deliverance until we see you face to face. Olam to all eternity. In the name of that eternal one who suffered in our place, the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.